Digiday Podcast. I'm Keely Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I am Kamiko McCoy, senior marketing reporter here at Digiday. All right. It is our last episode of the year uh, coming at you on December 26th. Um, we are currently on our holiday hiatus, so hope everyone is having a relaxing week, um, all of our listeners. But we wanted to give you a fun kind of end of the year recap episode where we talk with our respective beat editors. So I had Tim Peterson, our former co-host of the Digiday podcast and current senior media editor, join us again to share some of his thoughts, some of his takeaways from this past year on the media beat. And then Kimiko, you had Christina Monolos join you for your conversation, right? Yeah, absolutely. We talked about what's been going on in the marketing landscape. Um, Obviously, we couldn't move away from the Barbie conversation, AI, and things like that. So got a lot of good juicy scoop of all things that happened in 2023. To be completely honest, I forgot Barbie was this year. I mean, how (laughs) could I forget? But like, it feels like it was almost two years ago at this point. So much has happened. Anyway, enjoy listeners and thank you guys for a wonderful year and for listening to our podcast. We'll see you in 2024. Bye. Tim, welcome back to the Digiday podcast. How have you been the past couple of months? Uh, I've been good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. um, I'm sure our listeners were wondering where you went. Just kidding. They have been probably watching your videos um, as much as I have been keeping up with them. Great coverage over there. <laughs> Love seeing more videos come out for Digiday. Thank you. I wanted to have you back on because uh, these end of year episodes and like, you know, editor trend episodes, they've typically performed pretty well for us historically. And so um, while Kamiko's chatting with Christina um, on our marketing beat, um, wanted to bring you on to chat about the media team and or the media beat and see uh, if we could unpack some of the top trends from this past year uh, in the world of media, as well as what trends and major stories we think are going to persist maybe into 2024, if we can predict a little bit there as well. So I think like the first thing that really stuck out to me this year, and I'm curious if you kind of saw the same on the, you know, TV end of the media spectrum um, is kind of this end of consolidated or scaled media plays to try and compete with platforms. It's something that came up in Sarah Guaglioni's and my coverage of BuzzFeed and, and Complex and the rumors of um, BuzzFeed selling off Complex. But in that, there is a lot of talk around media companies, digital media companies in particular, that were once reliant very heavily on social platforms for traffic and um, ad revenue and things like that. Um, and even like, you know, partnership revenue from the platforms. Uh, they are seeing a lot less money and audience coming from those areas. And I think the initial goal or the initial plan was to try and compete for that attention or that ad revenue from the platforms by scaling up and scaling big. Uh, But I think this past year kind of showed that that's not really working as well as they once thought. And so at least this is something I expect to maybe see more next year as well, but um, less focus on scale and more focus on like franchisable niche media and assets that are unique in that way. Um, But I'm curious if that's something that is kind of just a digital media thing or if that kind of extends to the TV world at all or other areas of media that you might be covering. Yeah, it seems largely concentrated to like web publishers, Um, like on the TV and streaming side of things, like scale is still the name of the game, like to the point where you have a lot of these streaming services now bundling 
uh, their services together just because they need scale, especially on the ad supported side of things. Um, you almost had um, kind of a point in which it looked like TV would go the other way where you, over the summer you had Disney CEO Bob Iger say, eh, maybe some of these TV networks aren't core to our business, meaning ABC, Freeform, Nat Geo Channel. Um, and you know, there's still the specter of, oh, should or would Disney ever sell off or spin off ESPN? But he's since walked back a lot of that. It still seems like Freeform is up for sale, but I think that's because it's more niche, whereas Disney seems to now be of the mind that, oh, no, we actually really do need ABC. And I think a lot of that has to do with the live sports side of things. Um, and then now with Puck reporting that Paramount's up for sale, um, it sounds like Paramount, like Skydance is the one kicking the tires on Paramount. But Paramount's been one where a lot of industry observers have been waiting to see who buys up Paramount. And similarly, you know, does um, Comcast look to sell off NBC Universal or does Comcast buy Paramount because to pair with NBC Universal because they need that scale in order to be able to compete with Disney and Netflix and Warner Brothers Discovery or does Warner Brothers Discovery, which I don't know where this money would come from, um, go out and by Paramount. So I think scale still is, you know, the name of the game on the TV and streaming side of things. You saw this with Netflix this year. They, after a really rough 2022, uh, because of the password crackdown uh, for the most part, some, you know, because of the ad supported tier, but subscriber growth through the roof to the point where, you know, Netflix is ending the year in a strong position, whereas last year didn't really end 2022 on such a great note. I have to say, I'm honestly surprised that the password crackdown did lead to a growth in subscriptions. And purely because my mentality around it was I refused to pay for Netflix after sharing my account with my mom for the entirety of Netflix's digital existence. Um, and so I have yet to to succumb to the pressure, I will have to say. Um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that other people did. Um, but I am curious, like, maybe like going into the ad revenue conversation a little bit, because it, you and I had chatted earlier this week that it looks like TV ad revenue is a little bit volatile in nature. And I, I feel like traditional TV is typically like well planned out, but you were saying it seems like that volatility is coming for traditional TV if it hasn't already kind of hit it, which I mean is volatility is a, a great descriptor for how the past couple of years have been, I think in digital media. Um, I was curious about when you said that. Yeah. So I've been working on like a 2024 look ahead piece on the streaming ad market, uh, publishing on digital.com on January 4th. Um, and for that, I've been talking with a lot of like investment chiefs at various agencies, uh, big agencies, and kind of across the board, what I'm what I've heard from everyone is how volatile budgets are. Now, that's not entirely new information. Budgets have been volatile for a few years now, but there were some of them who were saying, no, budgets are more volatile now than at any point in my career. There were at least two who made like that claim, that level of claim, and expecting it to be the case next year. And so that's affecting 
all areas of the ad market, uh, from what I can tell, but including traditional TV. And, you know, typically traditional TV is a bit more insulated, like it has the the upfront. And so there's, you know, some volatility there, but that volatility because of upfront commitments kind of lessens the volatility to an extent. Um, but everyone that I'm talking to right now is saying, no, even traditional TV, like a lot of the hesitance to commit in the upfront this past year and likely next year is because there's just not that level of comfort with these long-term commitments. And it seems to be to the point where it's like, will that comfort ever return? Or is this kind of the name of the game at this point? Yeah, which is, I think, something that we had discussed. Um, I don't know if it was the end of last year or beginning of this year around this lack of visibility, especially from like the CRO perspective of digital media companies, like not being able to predict a quarter until you're in it. It does seem like that's kind of the persisting nature of the business. I think, unfortunately, the reality, at least for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's basically like, oh, you thought 2020 sucked? Well, it did for many reasons. Um, you thought 2022 sucked? Well, actually, 2023 sucked more than 2022. Probably not as much as 2020, given you know the pandemic of it all. And now it's just like, God, how bad is 2024 going to be? Or at least that first half of 2024. Because it feels like a lot of the conversations I'm having with folks buying sell side right now and i'm sure you're having a reminiscent of last year like there have been a couple times when like folks have talked about like yeah it seems like first half of 24 is going to be you know tough but then hopefully things get better in the second half where i have to stop them and say wait but weren't we saying this exact same thing a year ago and they're like yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah you got to keep some level of optimism i'm sure otherwise this is not the the business to be in. I understand wanting to force a, a happy perspective on the situation, but I will also add, though, that the reality check of needing to do cost-cutting measures, I think this past year has been this very prolonged like period of layoffs in media, Like, and a lot have happened in the past few months, which is pretty par for the course ahead of a new year. Like, setting budgets, cutting extraneous staff, things like that. And maybe this was your way of describing it. It's it's just kind of been this prolonged period, not really like a moment, a specific moment in time with layoffs. But it does feel like the media industry has been kind of knocked upside the head with uh, just a lot of job cuts too. So there is some planning for rough waters ahead uh, in that regard. We're definitely not hiring like we were in 2021 this time, but yeah, yeah, I don't it's know. Kind of like, I, is this just the new normal? This you know, budget volatility, lack of revenue visibility, you know, kind of consistent rounds of layoffs. Is it like you know the weather, where the weather is just so hard to predict these days? It can be eighty in January. It can be you know thunderstorms in you know July, um, kind of thing. Like it feels like the economic climate very similar to that. At least the economic climate for the media business. And then, of course, underlying all of that are like a number of changes to how digital advertising, the programmatic ad space is being conducted like this year, but then also next year, just the looming kind of cookie deprecation that I I know Dan Taylor was just on the podcast and was very adamant about cookies 
going away by the end of 2024. I'm not sure I'm totally convinced. But given everything that happened with like made for advertising sites this year, MFAs, basically becoming like enemy number one. And then this added layer of sustainability and measuring carbon emissions and that being something else that the ad industry, the publishing space needs to figure out how to measure and measure effectively. I feel like there's so many added tasks on the to-do list of marketers and publishers alike. I would not want to be in the programmatic space next year. Probably didn't want to be in <laughs> Is there any space either, you but. would want to be in next year, though? I like covering media. It's fun. This is a fine place to be. Is is media itself a stable place? No, but we didn't join media to be super secure, I guess. Yeah, I, it, I was being glib, but what I meant by that is it just feels like every facet of the industry um, has plenty of challenges. And in you know, some respects, they feel like unprecedented challenges. At the same time, it feels like there's always unprecedented challenges. I don't know. I feel like maybe my mind is just settling into it. All of this is normal now. Yeah, that's fair. I also wish that we had left the word unprecedented back in 2020, but it does seem to keep getting reprised in various conversations. And for good reason, I think it's the unfortunate yeah. part of that. Well, I think it's also a good time to maybe include AI into this conversation because that was obviously a big trend that bubbled up in 2023. Our colleagues Sarah Guaglioni and Marty Swant have done a good job covering the AI revolution, boom, slow burn. I'm not really sure what to characterize it as, but the incorporation of AI into media and marketing. I mean, I know we've talked about this um, in various editor trend episodes, but I am curious what your opinions are on its present role in media. Um, I know during like the actor strikes and the writer strikes, like AI did, that was a big topic um, of conversation to put some regulation on the matter. But I am curious how the past few months especially have been in reporting what's been happening in that area. Yeah. I get sick of like everyone saying, oh, test and learn, test and learn all the time. Um, at the same time, I feel like there still hasn't been enough testing and definitely hasn't been enough learning when it comes to the application of generative AI tools to the media business, whether it's you know advertising side or the publishing side of things. Like, for example, one thing that still hasn't been sorted out is the copyright side of this. You know, how, to what extent do these tools violate copyright law? We may find that out, especially with OpenAI saying for enterprise customers, it'll um, shield them against copyright or based from the sounds of it, like kind of provide its lawyers to handle any copyright suits that may come. Um, then on the other side, you have, you've seen publishers kind of rush to adopt generative AI and that not go so well for many of them. I mean, like, you know, not again, not to be too glib about it, but start of the year, a lot of the concern was like, oh, is generative AI going to take um, media jobs? And it has in the examples of the arena group C-suite where Sports Illustrated uses generative AI intentionally or not intentionally because it seems like 
accounts kind of differ. Um, kind of basically fabricates stories, uh, blames it on the AI. But you know, this week that we're talking, the CEO was let go, and a lot of other you know leadership at Arena Group, Sports Illustrated's parent company, have been let go. Um, so, and I think that kind of goes to show there hasn't been enough time spent with these tools to really understand how they should be used and how they should be guarded against and how they should be limited. And even like this week, like the New York Times hired Zach Seward from Quartz at, or the co-founder of Quartz as the new editorial director for artificial intelligence initiatives. And the Wall Street Journal reported that it's Basically, the publisher indicating that this is a you know major piece of technology that they're looking to explore and possibly implement. But what's interesting, I think, is like, I mean, and this is I know something that's been on a lot of people's minds is like with next year being a presidential election year and not just in the U.S., like there are a lot of elections next year globally, like what that's going to look like in the misinformation disinformation battle like it just and I know I said this before on the podcast but it is such like a concerning hurdle not even hurdle just like Goliath to be facing I feel like after going through previously to other very misinformation heavy elections in the U.S. so I am with you that there still needs to be a lot of testing and learning and I think um, publishers and media companies have done a good job of trying to work together to figure out things around IP and copyright and like information scraping but I also don't think we've faced the the biggest battle yet when it comes to election coverage and AI being a player within that yeah no, I mean, I think overall 2023 has been a hard year. Uh, 2024, for everything we've been talking about, seems set up to be a hard year. At least, you know, I think it's probably good for folks to go into 2024 expecting it to be a hard year and not to get all David Goggins about it, but that's kind of just the nature of the beast at this point. And you know, to your point around, every year feeling unprecedented or everything feeling unprecedented. I think just folks kind of need to take up that mantle themselves and be unprecedented in order to deal with all this unprecedented shit. Yeah. I feel like unfortunately 2024 is not as bright and sunny as some of the media execs I've spoken to this past year have hoped. At the same time, I do think that there is more conversations around, um, you know, having brand deals around events or, um, you know, franchisable assets that publishers have, which is positive. I think events have come up in almost every conversation I've had with publishers that have events or have an events business as being kind of the golden child of the business next year, um, which is good, uh, especially for Digiday, considering we have a very good events business. But we'll just have to see, like, I don't know. I'm I'm really curious about what growth looks like. Um, and there's a lot of different areas of the business that we'll have to be checking in on over the next 12 months. Yeah, because like to your point around, you know, oh, advertisers and publishers are having to deal with the cookie, but then also sustainability and, you know, everything else that they're dealing with. It's just like, well, 
are these priorities? In which case, if they are, then you know, prioritize them. And if they're not, then don't prioritize them. But I feel like everyone's kind of just got to make it work because what other choice is there? Yeah. And it will be interesting to see what ends up becoming a, you know, top list priority. I feel like it's ultimately like where the ad revenue is dictating. So like sustainability, for instance, hasn't been, I would say it's like a top of mind thing, but it hasn't necessarily been implemented. Like carbon emissions measurement and reducing carbon emissions hasn't, I think, been earnestly like looked at as a need to do by many publishers and ad tech vendors and things like that, uh, especially if they don't have like corporate mandates around it. But I do think that once ad budgets are spent based on carbon emissions, which it looks like that might happen as soon as there is a standard created, which is in the works for hopefully early next year from GARM um, and Ad Net Zero, maybe that's where the pressure will come down to say like, all right, well, sustainability has to be your priority because now we're actually spending money based off of that. I don't think that pressure existed this year. So it'll be interesting to see where priorities go, how they change, and who is dictating what those priorities will end up being, um, especially if Google delays their their timelines again. I'm guessing cookie deprecation will fall to the bottom of the list. Um, yeah, which I know we not. didn't talk much about. Yeah, we didn't talk much about cookies in this conversation, but based on your reporting from our programmatic marketing summit earlier this month in New Orleans, that like level five readiness out of a scale of ten doesn't seem optimistic. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it's it's all troubling, but that doesn't mean it should be an excuse for everyone. Um, if anything, I think a lot of this is complacency kind of coming home to roost. Like the industry, there are people in the industry saying, you know, it needed to get away from the third-party cookie years ago, like before, you know, Google... Uh, Set down, you know, this is even before, you know, Apple with intelligent tracking prevention. Um, and yet the industry continues to cling to it. Um, it's, I don't know, it's people just got to get past it. And, you know, it's, it's going to suck. It's going to be hard, but oh well, everyone will be the better for it on the other end of it. And that is a great note to end on. Um, thank you, Tim, for taking the time to return to the podcast and share your thoughts about the top trends from this year and what we are watching for next year. Lots to cover in the coming year. So looking forward to seeing your videos and reading your briefings and stories. Cool. Thanks, Caleb. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back. Hi, Christina. Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. So glad to have you. Hi, Kamiko. Thanks for having me. Of course. What an honor. What an honor. How's your day treating you? An, an honor. Um, that feels like high praise. Um, my day is fine. Um, thank you for having me on. We are here, obviously, to talk about the end of the year, 2023. We've made it through um, by the skin of our teeth, no less. But we've made it, and that's what's important, as has the industry. Um, and what I'm excited to talk about today is everything that we have suffered through, I mean, been through this year as an, as an industry, <laughs> whether it be the, the fall of X, which I don't know at what point do we say 
form stop saying formally Twitter. Um, never. The rise of AI, never. God rest its soul. <laughs> um, the rise of AI and, and everything else. So, with no further ado, I'm glad to have our, our our editor here of the marketing team to to chat with us. So, let's get into it. First questions first. Do you still have your Twitter account? Do you still use it? Yeah, I still have my Twitter account. I will get on it every once in a while. I deleted it from my phone and. Every time that I get on Twitter, I am alerted to being tagged in some sort of strange scam thing that I then have to block whoever is is tagging me in that. Um, so, you know, it, it's hard to quit Twitter, which, you know, I know, as stated, we should be calling X, but I'm not going to do that. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to quit Twitter because... You know, the community there, even though half of it is gone because they are sane humans who have stopped using the platform altogether, um, you know, it's still what was there hasn't been replicated elsewhere. A solid point. Speaking of like the spam, for the people that have left, there's also been a large slew of brands that have also left the platform, both in terms of community and in terms of ad spend. We've seen IBM, Apple, CNN, I think Disney even pulled out um, as a uh, hate speech bots and things like that started to kind of overrun the platform. That's some reporting that we did this year. Um, give me the kind of the, the rundown. I mean, I think we've seen sort of this ebb and flow with Twitter where there's been this expectation that, like, this is it. This is the end. We keep waiting for, like, an actual end to things. Most recently, having Elon Musk in an interview with the New York Times telling Bob Iger to F himself. I mean, I don't really know how... Linda Yacaniro can repair the relationships, you know, with those brands. I, I think I think it gets to a point where, you know, it's just impossible. If you talk to media buyers, you ask them about Twitter, a lot of the time what you'll hear is like, previously, Twitter had such a great team. And, you know, for the big events, that's that's where you wanted to be. People, you know, people were spending time on there. It made sense for brands to be there. And that Twitter's team was so great was part of the reason that these brands were really spending money there. And so you don't have the team anymore and you have a lot fewer people on the platform. And then what is on the platform is not brand safe a lot of the time. Um, And, you know, media buyers, if you talk to them, what they would say about Twitter was like, it was never a necessary platform. It was never something where, like, you had to be spending on Twitter. It was a nice to have. It was something that could be good, um, especially during those live events, during those moments. So I don't know how you have all of these problems with the platform, with who's running the platform. You're insulting advertisers. I don't really know how you fix any of that to make it something that was a nice to have be a must have. Yeah. Giving the middle finger to Disney, a wild concept, but I think it seems that the bet that they're trying to make now is on these more smaller, obscure advertisers as if that will 
mm-hmm. save um, the the platform um, and also pushing the subscription based uh, user experience. Um, I don't think you can even DM somebody without paying a fee now. I don't. Which kind of hinges on the customer experience when somebody, a big part of Twitter also was using it to get in front of brands as a customer and, you know, kind of give your complaint and whatnot. And that that also has been the functionality that no longer exists. So Twitter has has changed a lot. It has changed a lot. Um, You know, I, I just, I don't know. I think we all expected Twitter to kind of go down in flames already it hasn't yet so maybe that's something but i just i don't i don't see marketers returning in mass i don't see that happening um i also you know for for small businesses i guess i'm curious what the appeal could really be because small medium sized businesses meta has really when it comes to social platforms been the platform for those businesses. I don't know what Twitter's competitive pitch for those small and medium-sized businesses would really be. So I don't know. I think there's there are a lot of questions that remain, I guess. And, you know, going into 2024, I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> Not for nothing. The time that all of this happens is notable because you're talking about something that wasn't nice to have when budgets are being tested to their limits as to right. how far a dollar can stretch. Yeah. Um, economic headwinds and things like that. Companies are are laying people off and marketing budgets are under more scrutiny than they have been in the past, um, which you kind of saw this pendulum swing from brand awareness to efficiency, where it became about performance, 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 performance. Right. A lot of the time, marketers are in this like weird, (laughs) weird uh, push and pull with a CFO where they really have to, you know, prove that marketing is worth it, you know? And when marketing is treated like a cost center, which has been a problem forever, uh, you know, it's hard to get the budget that you want without being able to say, here, here's where your budget's going, here is what we're doing. And so it makes sense to focus on performance when you're, you know, when things are tight and when you have a, a CFO who is saying, like, we're not going to give you any more money unless you can prove that this is working. So, you know, you get a lot of that performance, but the problem is, and you know, anytime you talk to someone about like, oh, the last recession, um, you know, what were, what were some of the like lessons to learn from 2008 that like marketers should not repeat. And, you know, you'll, you'll hear some version of like, well, you can't treat marketing as a cost center. You can't, you know, really reduce your spend because the brands that did, um, you know, yeah, they may have saved money in the short term, but in the long term, the brand recognition, the, you know, it, it hurts them. So I think there are a lot of people who are aware of that and who like spout that when when their budgets are being um, constrained, but it doesn't necessarily stop the whole, like, we have to prove that this is working. We have to focus on performance. Um, 
especially now with, you know, so many of the, you know, all the various digital platforms where like the hope is that you can track everything. And like if measurement and attribution was uh, perfect, which is like what everyone hopes for and will only become a bigger problem next year. Bless everyone. Sorry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, I, I, I think... I think I'm, like the the focus on performance makes sense, especially with the constrained budgets. But you can't only do performance; like it, it doesn't work. There's the concept that you shell out for performance to get the sales to prove yourself to the CFO, but in the long run, you end up just shelling out more to boost brand awareness. Now that everybody has forgotten your brand, <laughs> to once again convince them to shop with you, um, be like, "Hey, we're still here." Well, that's that's a weird thing. I don't envy anyone in, in in that position where it's like you are having to fight for every dollar. That's got to be tough. Um, but at the end of the day, like you can't only do performance. Like it doesn't work. You have to give re- you have to give people a reason to care about your brand. There has to be that affinity. And like we're not in two thousand eight. Like it's not just about storytelling over linear TV, like we get it, but there does have to be a connection that people feel to a brand. A lot of that is, well, it's not, it's not to say it's like not as important. It's more that like, they're not, they're not getting the budget to be able to do it as they would like to. We actually just talked to Airbnb's global head of marketing, um, Hiroki Asai, about the same thing, about the need to push back up the the so-called marketing funnel to boost brand awareness, um, kind of in this less reliance on performance and tapping into brand awareness, once again, for some of the same reasons that you're, that you're noting here. Um, curiously enough, linear TV seems to be a big way <laughs> to do that. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. And again, like with, with linear TV, like people keep being like, it's the death of TV. It's the death of creative agencies. Everything is like shit, you know, it's just, um, you've been hearing all of that for years. It's, it's more that like things shift and things change and like linear TV may not get you the same sort of audience as like, I don't know, whenever ER was important the most important show. Um, like you're not getting ER and like Seinfeld numbers, like sure. But there's a reason that it it works. Like linear TV still works, especially when it's a live event that where you do have those tuned in audiences. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that brands still do it. There's a reason that it works. And I just think the death of, TV thing, those those predictions, those always happen. And then not for nothing, you did a lot of reporting on this with the strikes in Hollywood, kind of refocusing that light on linear television, on live sports and things like that. So talk a little bit about, about that. About the success of The Golden Bachelor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> like unexpected, just as a complete side note, watching the first episode of that, I did not expect to nearly cry from that guy's story in like two seconds. Mm-hmm. Good deal on those producers. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, obviously with the strikes in Hollywood, there was a, you know, 
production was delayed as people rightfully fought for what they deserved. As that was happening, it kind of, like if you talk to media buyers, they were kind of saying like it happened at like a good time for the industry because it was like, it was the end of the season. Um, you know, things were going to go on hiatus anyway. Um, yes, it delayed things for the fall, but things were resolved by, you know, almost the end of the year. Um, they could have been resolved much earlier if these companies had gotten back to the table. And that's a whole other conversation. But the fall was messed up. But the the spring won't be. And I think I think once everything gets back, there will be an understanding even more so of the power of like these new shows and and linear in that way. But all of that's to say like the conversations with buyers, I was like dollars were just shifted to reality TV and to live sports and everything that would be live. And it didn't hurt advertisers as much as some would expect. Here's an interesting concept that I was introduced to is the idea of scabbers in this space. And this is how I segue us into talking about influencer marketing. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Let's get into scabs. (laughs) This is a hard transition. Let's do it. Let's make it as awkward as possible. Love that. Love that. But essentially, it's this idea that influencers are looking to make the jump from being just influencers and brand advocates into the into the show business. Um, but a way that many of them, some of them were slapped on the wrist for um, was kind of taking those, crossing the picket line um, for, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, but I, I do think there's something to be said about the growth of influencers right now and how they're becoming media companies and whatnot in their own right. They've, they've launched their own brands and whatnot, just kind of really expanding with the idea or role of a content creator slash influencer is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the influencer marketing has been around for a very long time. I mean, I was reading Taylor Lorenz's book. God, I can't remember the the title of the book, but... I think it's Extremely Online. That's it. Yeah. Um, and the chapter on early mommy bloggers and the power that they had, I think that was you know, it, it sort of highlights how influencers have been important for brands for quite some time and they have a lot of power. And influencer marketing has only gotten more important for marketers when people are spending more and more time on these social apps. The social world has only gotten more fragmented. So you have all of these different yeah. communities where, you know, look, I care a lot about movies and I like to see weird fashion influencers who wear (laughs) outfits I would never wear um but I love seeing it um and I think that's true for most people and for like what they care about and I and that's what has has shifted with influencer marketing I think it's not just like oh hey we can pick a couple different influencers and you know, they have 3 million or so followers, whatever, and we can hit all these different people. It's more about figuring out the cultural niche that your brand will hit with and finding people in that community. Wouldn't you say? Well, unless you're the company Bloom, then you advertise via everybody on TikTok. <laughs> but 
Besides them, yes. I mean, but that's also the thing that's hard about TikTok is like, there are so many TikTokers who have millions of followers and like, they could be really important to you and I could have never heard of them. So that, I think as influencer marketing has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, it's, it's, uh, it's become something that is much more nuanced than yeah. it was initially. Do you think there's any chance based on your reporting that we'll ever see an influencer bubble burst? I mean, every bubble burst, doesn't it? At some point. So yeah, of course. I don't know. I don't think it will go as expected. I don't know how it will go. I'll be interested to report on it. An interesting point that I've seen brought up is the idea that, like you said, there's always been influencers. They just take different shapes. So the reality TV stars like Jersey Shore, Snooki, things like this, those were the influencers that we had as millennials. Sure. Yeah. And I do wonder if it just changes iteration, which... I don't know what brands ever worked with Snooki. I know which ones do now. I don't know which did <laughs> in her heyday. <laughs> but that's the concept of how an influencer has kind of changed and shifted. And influencers themselves have had to like really work here recently because there's so many of them stand out and change their their niches. The food story that we did about how more of them are getting to the food space. Sure. Yeah. I'm truly trying to think of it if there are any brands that like Snooki yeah, talked about well. on the Jersey Shore. <laughs> and I can't think of any. I'm sure there were things that popped up in interviews, but I'm like, you know, oh God, what was it? She would be like, juice heads. We have to go down to the yeah. club to see the juice heads. <laughs> the reporting that you guys did on the food space, it kind of speaks to how things change online. And, you know, a lot of influencers will follow that like follow what's working. And I think brands have to do the same thing because nothing can be stagnant anymore. Like you can't just be like, our brand is this one thing. That's all we do. This is who we talk to. Like everything is constantly shifting. And I think brands and influencers have to recognize that and have to sort of follow their audiences if they want to do that. You also see plenty of influencers who tap out after a certain yeah. period of time because there's there's burnout. I mean, if you're constantly creating content, if you're constantly being online in that way, that's a lot. Jenna Marbles, wherever you are. I know. I hope you're doing well. <laughs> you're doing well. I hope her dogs are doing well. Them too. You know. But yeah, that's an it's an interesting concept. I'm I'm not sure who the audience is for the men that are shirtless and being like sexual with their food while they're cooking. I hate um, that. But there's something for everybody, <laughs> man. I hate that. Everyone saw the like Salt Bay guy and they were like, I'm going to be him. Actually, let's take it a step further. <laughs> I hate it. Keith Lee is a much better food content creator. Yeah, I was here in Atlanta when he came to Atlanta and it caused a ruckus. And I, I everybody was like, what's going on? And I said, the man's coming through like a tsunami right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, RIP some of the Atlanta restaurants. I don't know. Redacted. I hope a lesson was learned. Um, but um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about like one of the biggest moments that we had this year, um, which was so big that I think I read a headline where they were running out of paint colors for it. Barbie was so big this year that they mm -hmm. ran out of Barbie pink yeah, because everybody was using it. I say this while I'm talking to you from a pink office with a pink keyboard, 
a pink mouse. As you should. Pink is great. (laughs) I think it turned a lot of brands to thinking like, huh, if Mattel was able to have this moment with Barbie, what can we then do? Did you see any brands be successful at that? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look, man, there are so many times where you have something that works and then you have companies that are like, oh, that works. We need to do that for us. And they always seem to learn like the wrong lesson. Barbie, if you really track what happened, that was a movie that was in production for like a decade. You know, you had the, like Anne Hathaway was at one point going to be Barbie. Amy Schumer was at one point going to be Barbie. You had a lot of creative teams try to crack it and it didn't work. And then eventually Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie got it together and they made it work and they made it into a huge cultural moment. And I think there are very few brands that have the, I don't know, patience, I guess, to continue to go after something and have that moment and work to find the right creative team and give them the creative freedom to create something that will actually connect with people. What happened with Barbie, with the movie in particular, is a rarity. And then you add into that that Barbie is a legacy brand with so much history that when they're licensing their brand out to you know, however many brands that they did around the Barbie moment, that is also a rarity. There are very few brands with that kind of history. There are very few brands that, you know, would be able to license like that. All of those things take time. And so much of marketing right now is short-term planning because of these budget constraints, because, you know, so many of these marketers are just having to report like quarterly earnings. Like we, you know, we were able to improve this. It's always got to be going up and to the right. And, you know, when you have short-term thinking, you can't get to the like long-term planning that leads to a success like the Barbie movie. So no, I I don't, I personally, I, I don't know if the Barbie movie could be repeated in a real way by other brands. And then Beyond that, I don't think it's always going to be a movie. I don't think it's always going to be some sort of like entertainment like that. Like we are in a strange moment with advertising where it feels like advertisers don't really want to be advertisers. They want to be part of the culture, which uh, is one of my end of year stories that I'm working on right now. And the Barbie moment is a, it, it it's almost like, something that you're definitely going to see a lot of brands point to and say like, where's our Barbie moment? How can we do this? It's not going to be the same for every marketer. It really depends on the budget, the brand, the history. I mean, what have you seen? Like, do, do you do you disagree? I have actually seen Barbie's coattails be really, really long um, and have a lot of brands riding on them, given these were like, you know, brand partnerships and things like that. But if I'm not mistaken, I read a couple of headlines where there was kind of like a slap on the wrist um, yeah. just from the from the public of brands like leveraging that iconic pink, I, leveraging some of the the other iconic things from Barbie while not having an endorsed brand <laughs> partnership just to tap into that cultural moment. 
What's crazy is there are some where you're like, why didn't they make this a bigger thing? Like you have the Birkenstock moment in the movie and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think I saw like a hot pink Birkenstock come out of the movie and be like, you got to get this. Like for as many brand partnerships as there were, it's kind of funny the things that popped off and and didn't. Yeah, I think I talked to Duolingo. They had a mention in the movie and ran with it, had an entire commercial and everything (laughs) because of it. God, Duo, amazing. The other thing I think is important to note with the Barbie thing is like the budget. Yeah, yeah. To have all of that, like, you know, I think there was a Hollywood Reporter piece that said they spent around like $140 on marketing alone. It was something around that. Like, you can't have something like that without having the real backing behind it. So, again, like, I I feel for all these marketers and all these agencies because I guarantee you there are a ton of people where there's, like, someone in the C-suite who, you know, expects that their brand will have a marketing moment and is, like, putting pressure on their CMO. And then that CMO is, like, agencies please help us like have this Barbie moment, but do it for um, a million dollars or like 200,000. It's like, that's not, I've got three chinos and some pocket lint, make it work. (laughs) I only think of Tim Gunn with the make it work. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Top, top. I want to close out on the elephant in the room. Something that we quite literally cannot get away from is the Uh idea of generative AI. Mm-hmm. It's been a year since ChatGPT, OpenAI's ChatGPT launched, um, and it has infiltrated everything from data processing to social content creator creating, excuse me, for, for agencies. I think since June, we've really kind of started to see what progression looks like in this space. You actually went to DPMS. So talk a little bit about kind of, you know, what conversations were like there. Yeah, so at the Digiday Programmatic Marketing Summit, DPMS, in New Orleans, just in case anyone didn't know. Apologies for assuming that everyone (laughs) knew what that meant. Just in case you didn't know what the acronym was. Um, You know, we were talking to folks about, you know, how they were using AI and what's happening there. And, um, you know, there were lengthy conversations about how to use it. But one thing that did come up was one one agency person was talking about how they were using AI to help them with, you know, deck creation. And um, they were also talking about like timesheets and stuff like that. And my God, like timesheets are still a problem for so many agency people. I'm so sorry. Uh, feel bad for all of you. But like, Timesheets have been a problem for so long. And if AI can actually like solve some timesheet stuff for people, I think that's like a wonderful use for AI that makes so much sense because this has been a year of AI where there's so much fear around AI taking creative jobs. You're seeing that happening. I mean, you just had the scandal with, what was it, Sports Illustrated? where they got caught for having AI pieces written and trying to sweep that under the rug. The New York Times, I think, well, they hired people for it, but they're launching a vertical focused on AI. 
BuzzFeed, I think they said that they were going to start focusing more on AI and having like AI written content. I think they've already started the AI quizzes. We all have to stop taking those quizzes. Like, does it matter whether or not you're like Emily Gilmore from the Gilmore Girls or, or, uh, I would not want to get Rory. I'll tell you this that. This is fair. I think that'd be, a, I think the best thing that I've seen come out of AI thus far, there's this meme of Steve Harvey on Halloween. <laughs> oh my I God. Wanna, print those out and put them on my living room walls. That is such a good piece of art. Um, yeah. Didn't they kind of make his teeth seem like way bigger in that? Have you seen Steve Harvey's teeth? They are big. <laughs> they are big teeth. And bless that man. He is a walking meme and it's so fun. Anywho, you know, there was, there was talk at DPMS of using AI for like timesheets for um, to do some of the brainstorming and there was this sense in the room that, you know, people were like, it's, it's not going to take jobs. What it is going to do, it's going to help us get to the idea faster and it's going to help us in these various ways. And then, you know, I think if, if true, cool, if yeah. true, great. Big um, if true. You know, I, I think, I think it's easy to be scared. I think it's easy to have fear around it. I think you're already seeing companies using it as an excuse to cut budgets, cut jobs, save money. And that sucks. Hopefully next year, what we will see is rather than us versus AI, it's, you know, AI helping us in a real way. I've only used it to the extent of helping me write emails. I've used it. I was like, okay, (laughs) give me a bio for me. And just to see what it would say. And it, it made me sound great with a lot of things that I've never done and like completely wrong. Um, I think we have to remember AI is still like our generative AI is like still for the most part in its infancy. You have um, Marty and I did earlier this year, kind of a write up looking at all the things, all the terms that are associated with AI. So many terms. One of, and it's never ending. One of them, I think, was hallucination. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where AI would just make stuff up and be like, here, do you have any 2024 things that you'll be on the lookout for? Uh, a, re- a return of bigger ad budgets. Um, I hate saying it this way, but I can't think of another way to say it right now. Brand storytelling. More brand storytelling. A recognition that creative agencies are not dead and like, yeah, quite important. Uh, I'm I'm so tired of like that death of creative agencies thing. That's what I'll be looking out for. What about you? What are you going to be looking out for? I'm going to be looking for a brand to have its Barbie moment by way of having its education connection moment. Oh my God. If somebody can recreate. First of all, God bless that lady because she's not getting paid for that. That is one of the most amazing jingles ever. And you said it, and I'm hearing it, and I'm not going to do it for our audience. (laughs) Everyone can look it up, but Education Connection Man, good for her. She should be having her, like, uh, who's the woman from Progressive? She should should be having her flow moment. Agreed. Agreed. And that is is my hope for 2024. Let's go. All right, Christina. Thanks for dropping in chat with us today. Thanks for having me, Kamiko. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday Podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. And please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts.